Christina Raya, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are breaking down selling screenplays and writing for TV outside of LA with guest Heather Taylor. Before we dive in, we just want to quickly plug our new free monthly newsletter, which you can find at the bottom of breakingoutpod.com. But without further ado, Heather, hello, welcome. Please introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Heather. Oh, first of all, sorry. Uh, there you go, Canadian, sorry. I uh, <laughs> wanted to say thank you so much for having me. I'm we really are I, so I'm a, glad that this worked out. We thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. No, I'm a listener and yeah, I love, yeah, you guys, I love it. I love it. Thank um, you. So I am Heather Taylor. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, my name is Heather Taylor. I am a filmmaker, writer, director, and whatever I have to do to get paid. No, I'm joking. <laughs> or am I? Not really. Um, but no, I'm a writer, director. I kind of joke that I'm uh, tri-coastal, so I work in Canada and then in the, I'm sometimes on the East Coast in New York and then also in L.A. But during this last two years of, as they say, unprecedented times, <laughs> I've been mostly on the East Coast. So hello. 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 Welcome. Yeah, well, we will definitely be talking about the, the tricoastal of it all and, and balancing <laughs> that and the, the challenges and opportunities that come from that. But obviously, ostensibly, you are here in our For Hire series talking about all things working for other people in the entertainment industry and the weirdness of that. So mm-hmm. do you have, like, obviously, you've worked in TV, you've sold screenplays. What do you consider your first For Hire job for selling screenplays? We're selling screenplays. Okay. Um, my first paid gig was a feature called The Last Tech War. Okay. It's the first feature that has that I've had made. But I would say that before that, I had written two other features for producers unpaid, which is often what happens when you start. But for them and ideas that they had, one of the producers is the one who then led me to The Last Tech War. So he basically, there was a, a director who was at the National Film and Television School who needed a writer to come in and help write the story. So they were a finalist, basically whoever won would get $80,000, things in kind. It would be, the film would be on channel four. It would have a theatrical release. There's all these things that came with that package. So they needed a writer to come on board. And so the last tech core is basically about a lone gunman who comes to this town looking for revenge for his mother. And it's in set in Bangladesh. So I, I'm not from Bangladesh. I am from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. But one of the things I'd worked with Atif, who is the producer, and he knew that I'd been in theater because I started off writing theater. And he's like, the sensibility around Bengali films has a more theatricality. We think that we want someone who's a theater writer. And then you're from Alberta, which is the Texas of Canada. So (laughs) obviously, you know, Westerns, right? So I said, yes. I did not know Westerns. <laughs> like I was like, ah, uh, sure. Tip number one: so, lie. No, <laughs> be confident <don't>. about it. <laughs> so no, what I did is I immediately watched like every Western I could find. Mm. So for me, like, was before I started working on it, I didn't like lie. I just said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, yeah, I'm from Alberta. Like I understand that space. And then I promptly made sure that I could really be able to reference it in the work that I was doing. Um, But we'd already worked together. He knew kind of, but we worked together on kind of a free basis, like let's write this and try to get it made. Um, It was really like more of a high budget film. And then he's like, look, come and work on this project. And, and that did get made and it premiered at the London international film festival. 
which is Ooh, really cool. That's exciting. So did you yeah. get paid? So you so you wrote it without getting paid, but then once like you got funding to make it, you got paid back. What? How did the payment work for that first project? Yes. So <laughs> everyone, I'm telling this as I tell everyone I ever talked to, get a contract mm-hmm. before you do any work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Right? <laughs> if there is we a could hu- say it every episode, we should get a contract. <laughs> get it even if you're working with your best friend. Get it written down in a contract. Both of you sign it. Have a copy available. Yeah. Continue. So, <laughs> exactly. I think I've fallen down this <laughs> contractless rabbit hole a number of times for a long time. Did not learn from these things because I think there's a, a hunger to make and to know that someone is going to make it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. To, or or you assume because it's a producer that it will lead to being made. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I just really wanted to do things and get stuff done. And I felt it seemed almost easier at that time to, though I have my own ideas for things, you know, I really had written one feature for me. And then after that features for other people, because they'd read my sample and they go, great, can you write this thing? And then I would write it because I'm like, this is a better chance, even though it wasn't always like my work, my original work. Sure. So I think contract first. What happened with this project is that we didn't have a contract in place. The payment wasn't as high as it should have been, I'll say. Like it was very sure. low, but also the budget was very low. So that was kind of to be expected. And I think because so when I had this contract in place or this contract given to me, I didn't have an agent, but I was doing a master's. And so my one of my instructors had an agent and said, you should meet this agent and she can help you with this contract. So that's kind of how I had a relationship with an agent for the first time was kind of through that. And that was in, when I was living in the UK. So that was kind of someone that I could go to with, with a couple of contracts. We didn't ever formalize our relationship, but we, she did like look over contracts for me. And it was kind of that type of relationship that was really helpful for me at that time. And then just making sure from that point on, like to really make sure you have a contract because I've had things where what will happen is if you write before a contract's in place, a producer can come back and say, well, she wrote that of her own volition. Mm-hmm. So I'm not paying for that. And so it's like, it's happened Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. me. And so that's why I like always encourage you make sure you have that contract in place before you proceed. And I think what it does is it allows for you to concentrate on the creative and not have to worry about the stress of like, will I get paid? And when will I get paid? And how will this be? If you have it all on the terms, it'll be fine. And if they don't want to do a contract with you, it's a red flag, right? So you're like, okay, great. I won't work with you because you're giving your talent and your time and your time is worth something. Yeah. You're not being difficult by insisting on getting it in writing, even if it's, you know, even if it's like a deferred payment sort of a thing, just because you aren't going to get a check as soon as it's signed doesn't mean that it's not still important. Right. Or like I have a shopping agreement in place on a project right now and how it with shopping agreements, it's basically like when we sell this, we will both all negotiate in good faith. Mm -hmm. Uh So that, they have, they put how we will negotiate, but not what it will be because we don't know. And, and honestly, sometimes the circumstances of you as a creator changes between the time when you first sign that to like later. So if you have more clout or something that's come out that is exciting, that gives you a little more fire, Mm. it can impact the negotiating process. So there's like good and bad for options and shopping, but it can be beneficial dependent on like what happens with you and them and like, so on and so forth. Sure. So two questions based on that then. So the yeah. first one is for that first for hire project, was it just like a one-time payout? Was it like a, you know, you are on contract writing this with us for six months. This is the the rate for that per week. Like what was the actual just 
construction of how you got paid, the amount of which we know you needed a better contract for, but like logistically, what yes. was that payment looking like? Did it happen after you'd written before? Yes. So this, in this case, it happened kind of after slash in the end of writing. Got it. So I had to like deliver really quickly. And then this contract came into place more when the funding came, but there was just nothing that protected me before then. Sure. Um, so usually what happens with with most projects, most features, and this has happened to with other features too, either sometimes, usually it's based on the stage, right? So uh, you get payment for outline, you get payment for a draft, you okay. get payment for the next draft, you get payment for revisions. And a revisions means you're not really, so I had to ask my, the first agent, like, what's revisions? Like, what does that mean? Because like, you think it's just, it could be anything, but really what it's supposed to be is like no changing of, of like major scenes and just like dialogue tweaks changes like dial like tweaks in action but it's not big fundamental changes because that's a draft mm -hmm. god oh oh that's interesting mm -hmm. the distinction and revisions and draft yes so and often revisions like so if they often they'll break it out so i had a recent film that um i made now on the other side of having many contracts <laughs> many contracts making lethal love for nishama and marvista how they would work it is basically this is a true these are all kind of writer for hire, but they come to you with like, here's a two pager. Will you write this? Yes. <laughs> but, but before I say yes, so I, I kind of joke about I'll do anything, but I won't. I, what it is, is it's like, how do I find my way into the story? How is this film going to show the things that are important to me? Mm -hmm. What are the ways that like my life experience feeds into this show? So for me with this film, I looked at it and I'm like, oh, it's about a gaslighter. Mm. I have experienced that. I've been in an abusive relationship. There are literally lines that this man says in this film that were told to me by someone that I thought loved me. So I'm like, I'm going to put this in here. And even if you look at it, it's like a very like fun, lifetimey woman in peril film. Mm -hmm. But at the core of it are real fundamental things that met, that in my experience personally and like family and friends and I went out on the internet too and said, hey, what are your experiences with gaslighters? Put this in this so that there was a realism to it that if you look deeper, that you'll see that these things can really happen. Now this goes extreme, like sit on the head and thrown into a river in a bag, <laughs> but like, you know, <laughs> it's quite, I mean, as women in peril, but then also in it was um, a story about a mother and a daughter. And I think uh, for me, family relationships are really important in the work that I do, like found and whatever way your family is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and those complications that come with that. Um, it's a mother and daughter who work together. I was like, well, that's a lot. And then uh, also it was in a bakery. I love cooking, all things cooking. So I'll watch like cooking shows are the thing that helps me de-stress. So my mission was to put all the baking I could ever think of in this movie and <laughs> whoever did art, the art department or food stylists are like delivered. And I'm just like, I put cherry pie in there, nod to Twin Peaks. Like I had a blast <laughs> and also music. So they had the, the character, the, the grifter was essentially a musician. So I'm like, mm. also I have a music background, like, you know, the listeners can't see this, but I have musical instruments on my wall. I, you literally have a music yes. background. Right I, now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's how I started out. I was started out in music when I was in like junior high, high school, and even the beginning of college. So to me, music is, is something that I really understand and I can, can play off of. So all these things meant, yeah, I could totally do this and embrace this kind of project. So basically they came to me and said, you are guaranteed an outline and a draft 
And then it's optional for us to pay you for a draft and then for revisions. So, or for like a second draft. Mm, so sure. for that project, I did an outline though. I really did three versions of that outline, but I got paid for a ver- an outline, <laughs> but sometimes like it's better because when you go to draft, it's cleaner. Mm-hmm. So sure. for me, I'm like, that's, but it was always mindful of my own time. Like we were very, like, they were really good communicators, the team, like one of the best teams that I've worked with in terms of like the notes were fantastic, mm-hmm. like high level notes, then very detailed notes. And they were very clear. So for me, the changes, I had to make changes, but they never felt like I was going back to square one ever. So really it's just like tweaking it to make sure it's strong to go to draft. Mm-hmm. And then I did two drafts and then I was done my contract. Okay. Got it. Is there a difference in price between the first and second drafts or is it just a draft is this much money regardless of how many drafts down the line you are? Yes. In this case, because this, this feature was written under, I wasn't a union member in the, in Canada. So it was a non-union contract. So Got each it. draft was the same amount of money, but if I do believe drafts could be slight, I think they're the same amount, but I'd have to double check. I think they're the same, but every stage has a sets attached to it. Got it. Okay. When you got this gig, did you have a rep, like reps at this point? Yeah. So I did, but I got the job on my own. So Mm. what had happened was I just got my rep. I mean, Hey everyone, we all want reps. Yeah. 70%, 50% of the work we're doing is from us, but it's a combination of like the reps get you meetings, you meet people, you call to continue to cultivate that relationship. You get a job, some of which came from those relationships, your reps got you in terms of like, they made the initial introduction Mm -hmm. and then it's up to you. And sometimes it's other people like recommend you or you meet. So the work is always like, I, some people are like, I got a rep, I get everything. And you're like, no, you have to still work the same as if you didn't have one, except if you really like, I really need to talk to this person or they'll submit you to stuff you don't know. And then you'll be like, they can, you know, they'll know things that you won't know yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's really useful. Or like in the case of my managers, they also you know, I get them invested in my work from day one and then they're there helping me shape it. But also to me, it's about they're investing their time into me, which means they're investing in the project. So like it's, but it's again, all cultivating relationships. Right. On this film, I had, um, I got into the Chorus Writer's Apprentice Program. So Chorus is a network in Canada. And so I got into their Writer's Apprentice Program as part of that in the before times, they send you to Banff World Media Festival in the beautiful mountains, Rocky Mountains in Banff, and you get to go to, for five days of this conference. Now you can, they don't, they're like, be free. You have one meeting with them for one hour yeah. and the rest of the time you are just free to do what you like, go to events, whatever. I chose to go into the directory and message every person that was going, wow. that I felt is going to be people that I'd that I, that I could work with, like projects that I could do with them. So I had tons and tons of meetings with people. I was so grateful. Showrunners said yes to meet with me and like a bunch of production companies met with me and Marley Reed from Neshema was one of them. And I, we got on like a house of like fire, which is exactly what you want because I, I try to remind people that when you go to a general meeting, you're not only being interviewed, you are also interviewing them. Mm-hmm. So for you, you're looking for like, do we have synergies? Could we work together? Like, will this be a good relationship? Because that's important because when you're in the trenches of writing or when you're getting the contract sorted and all those things, like you want that person to be on the same page as you because it makes your life easier and it makes 
the process of writing more joyful Mm. or to me, it does. (laughs) I'm like, you don't, I don't want strife when I'm creating. I want to be on the same page, like with Neshema and Vista, the notes were so easy to comprehend that it was like, I can make the changes and like, great. You've made the changes. Like it, it was fantastic. So I'd met with her and, and we talked actually about television. She knew that I'd written features, but I was there on a chorus writer's apprentice programs for TV. So I was there for TV. And so we talked about TV. And then there was a, a group in Canada called um, Inc. Canada, which is if you aren't Canadian or even if you're not, you can join the Facebook group. They ask a few questions, you join, but everyone who's everyone in Canada is there. So be mindful of that when replying to people because some people... It, pretend the internet isn't seen by any other humans <laughs> they're they're there but she had posted something saying i'm looking for writers i need a sample of a thriller or a horror mm-hmm. and uh i had a horror script that i had been asked to write by, <laughs> by two directors who came to me and said we like your writing can you write this with us indie film and i'll explain that deal in a second because it was it's a different type of deal and then i was like fantastic like here's the script it's a horror and it's not lifetime type thriller mm-hmm. but there's thriller elements to it because it's a it's it's a horror mm-hmm. and so she read it loved it you know basically it was like when something we feel like is right for you we will send it to you so that was in October November time they shared it with Mar Vista they're like we're not going to make this film I'm like I didn't expect you to like it's <laughs> environmental t- two-hander horror it's not your thing <laughs> like I know I know it's not but what happened was within four months on in February of 2020, I was asked to write that feature. I said, do you want to write this? Yeah. And then I read the two pager and I said, yes. But then my agents looked at over the contract, which is really standard, like a standard contract that they would do for a first time writer that worked with them. Mm. So then we worked on that film during that time. I staffed on in the development room for the Hardy boys and became union in Canada. And then when they came back to me in November and said, can you write the second script for us? Cause we like working with you. I wasn't able to work. They only work with non-union writers because of the, it's so low budget that ah, they have, okay. they just, they, they can't. Um, so that's their model. So w- what their model is that they, they um, so it's a buyout. So it's not very much money and it's a buyout because what they do is they like, they write it, they write it, produce it, and then they sell it on the back end. Mm-hmm. So I was like, it, felt very fortunate and excited. It was on Netflix, super accessible. People can see it. You say, I have a film on Netflix. People are like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. My husband's entire family watched it in the mm-hmm. summer at the cottage and they were so excited. They took pictures of them watching my film and like <laughs> sent it to me. And I went to a wedding and they're like, this is the girl who did Netflix movie. And I was just like, it's all good. And, and it was amazing, embarrassing, but I was like, wow, I've done all these other things and no one ever talks about yeah. it, but <laughs> the importance of accessibility. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, so I think like really in those circumstances, being a threat for a hire, even though it wasn't my initial idea, it's only a two pager. They're giving me a lot. I have to put a lot of myself and my own ideas into it. So mm-hmm. that's the thing. Where does that two pager come from? Like who, who's out there like writing two pagers without intending to write the full script? It's the producers. Okay. It comes from the producers. Yeah. So they decide what do they need in their slate? What kind of stories? It actually, I think came from Marley herself that's where it comes from. They do their own development internally. They determine what kind of stories they want to create or what so like we, we want a thriller where a woman gets thrown in a, in a, in a lake and there's some gaslighting and a musician and they're like, all right, let's see what somebody can do with this. Like, <laughs> yeah. is it like that? Like uh, they just have a it's a list little, of taglines. No, or no, keywords? It's, it's more worked out than that. It's a full, like, it's a, here is the, this, the movie. Mm. 
Here is in okay. two pages, you have, this is the full movie. You, I knew I had the character names already for the main characters. And then, you know, in the script, you know, trying to ensure that I added as much diversity as possible and like really trying to make sure like I put things in that were important to me as a creator mm-hmm. and also like got to, they're like, oh, um, there's a text from the, there's like a line that says, there's a text from the daughter and the mom knows it's not her. And you're like, how in the heck is that going to be a thing? Like mm-hmm. how? So then I, I just rent, oh, I know they are this quirky thing. They do, they, um, complete movie quotes, mm. but specifically old movie quotes. Cause they love old movies. I just like, and then had to like, look for lots of movie quotes, which took me much longer than <laughs> I expected, <laughs> but I put those, that detail. Cause I, so I had to solve, like, it's a, an outline you're like, yeah, okay. But when you actually have to write it, you're like, okay, what's the solve for this? Mm. Mm-hmm. And so for me, in, and in doing so, also like at first it started where the, you didn't know who the, the bad guy, you thought he was just a good guy, but then we realized you're, you're going to know pretty fast. So just like, let's say from day one mm-hmm. moment that you first see him, you know, he's bad. Mm-hmm. And then you see the process and, and the difficulty in that is trying to figure out how do you make the women not look stupid? Mm-hmm. And because, sure, yeah. because when you look at it, like my sister is an editor, her name is Sarah Taylor. She's an amazing editor. She's worked with me before. She was interviewing for her podcast, some editors of uh, one of the Nexium cult documentaries. Mm -hmm. And she basically said, um, they said, we had to be mindful of the details we included because we didn't want the women to seem stupid. Mm -hmm. We wanted people to understand they were intelligent. It's just when you are being indoctrinated into a cult, Mm -hmm. it's a slow, slow journey to to the bottom. And you don't realize you're at the bottom until you're there. And so it's that difficult balance and you can only do what you can do, but it's those things that you consider when you're writing. It's like, how do I make sure that these things are really clear and I'm fulfilling the needs of the, the who I'm writing for, but I'm also ensuring there's parts of me in this too. Yeah. All right. We're definitely going to come back to that. Uh, I am curious just about timeline from you accepting the, the contract through the second draft that you wrote. What was that timeline? So the whole process started writing in my contract was in to me by March or April and okay. final, final draft was in by August. Okay. Well, wow. Okay. So six months ish. Yeah. And, and also like breaks in between when they're doing notes, which is really sure. helpful because I was in the writer's room. So uh, it all actually worked out so perfectly. Like we took a week break from the writer's room and they came back with notes. So I took the week to write the next thing. So it was weird, like all the pieces. And then the last draft was due on a date that I thought um, I would be somewhere, but, but I actually had to drive across Canada to get it. Long story, but I was somewhere in Canada. I had to drive for five days mm-hmm. and cause Canada is very large, but it was the same time as my dead deadline. So I did, I had finished my draft and I do many different things when I finish a draft t- to help me. So, so before I left for the drive, what I do is I print out all of the characters dialogue independent of everyone else so that I can do dialogue passes just yeah. with dialogue. And then print that all out and I would do that and then do a final pass and then sent it back in on the day it, I needed to deliver from a hotel in Ottawa. <laughs> like sending them the final draft, but I'm like, as a, as a writer for hire, you must deliver on time regardless. Sure. Now I could have asked for more time, but I knew that I could hand it in by that date. And I did. So I think like, that's the one thing is that if you have any difficulties about communicating fast and early, like as early as you can, if there's going to be a difficulty or you need to have an extension, 
being mindful of like their time. They, this is a business. Mm -hmm. And so I think people are open to like, if there's something's going on, like obviously things happen in family or whatever happens, but Mm -hmm. you know, not the day that it's due that you you don't come back to them and say, I I need five more days. You go, you go as early as you can. Right. Got it. Okay, cool. So with the, you you mentioned that you were in your, your writer's room. Was that still the development room or was that like breaking stories, moving on to season one for Hardy Boys at that point? So this was the development room for season two. Season two. Yeah. So I was an intern in season one because of the Chorus Writers Apprentice Program, which led to my job in season two, which was, I was so grateful for because we were all like, yeah, yeah, we're going to bring the room. And then, well, we know what happened. Yeah. Uh, 22, March, 2020. But so we did a Zoom room for season two. So a development room comes in many guises. In this case, we wrote, we determined the um, storylines for the characters for the season. So we like looked at season arcs for both um, the different characters, what their journeys would be. And then also what's the mystery of the season because it's a very serialized show. Mm-hmm. And we then also had to write the first five of 10 episodes. So mm-hmm. essentially what, in this case, and it doesn't always happen, like this development room is this way. It's a 10 week development room. We wrote five hours of television and basically made a great cliffhanger at the midway point of the season to be like, haha, don't you want to see what happens next? <laughs> like we've told you, but like this, look how amazing this is going to be. And that's how the showrunner, like, cause it's still, when you're in development, you're still selling, right? Mm-hmm. You're still selling sure. to the network. And so for us, it's just like getting it as tight as possible, really showing our things. And then in, in uh, my contract, when it came to me, so I was, um, this is a room in Canada and it's a co-production between the U S between us and Canada. So chorus is the network in Canada. And then Hulu is the network in the States. And then now it's also being distributed on Disney plus for Mm. at least the first two seasons. So the second season is not out yet. So in 2020, we did this development room. And um, as part of it, when I got my contract, they're like, there's a development room. And if it goes, then you get one script. So I kind of came back to my agent and said, look, if it doesn't go, which is always possible, it doesn't matter if you write five scripts, we've seen this happen time and time again, whole seasons can be written and it doesn't continue. So I'm like, I want half a script because in Canada, which is a little different than US, but in Canada, what happens is you get um, a script payment. And then when it goes to production, you get a percentage of the budget. Mm. Oh, interesting. So you get a weekly fee for writing in a room. So in this case, what they did is they said, I'll say it should be, I hope it's standard or people will tell me (laughs) and then I'll know. (laughs) So uh, in the development room, I got 1500 a week. I'm Canadian. And then I got, and then they're like, if it goes, if it gets greenlit, the next 10 weeks, you get 1850 a week. So your pay goes up. And then I got half a script. So I'm not going to be right on the numbers. It's close to this. So if you write a full script, I think it's 32,000 for a full episode, Mm. half a script, which I did was was around 1600 or so 16, sorry, 16,000 or so. Mm. Sure. But then I just thought you get the same amount again, but you actually get a percentage of the budget of the episode, I believe is what it is. So it was more than that. And so I was surprised and, and delighted. <laughs> so, sure. And I also thought it was a mistake. I wrote, cause I didn't realize I wrote to my man. I wrote when it's, this is when it's in production, you get mm-hmm. that percentage, but when it's in production, mm-hmm. you're supposed to get paid on day one of filming. Right. So I, <laughs> my man, my manager's assistant or my agent's assistant money. And I wrote to him, I'm like, Hey, um, 
I think they screwed up. I think they screwed up. And he's like, no, Heather, that's how much you get paid. I was like, this is a very good day. (laughs) (laughs) I have, I have much more runway than I expected now, which will lead me into like other, you know, cause you're not in rooms. Like some people are in rooms back to back to back and others aren't. And that's okay. It's just that this is what happens. Mm -hmm. So when you say half a script, does that mean you're co-writing with somebody else? Yes, that's correct. Got it. And is uh, we just talked to an American TV room, uh, TV staff writer. Uh, I think listeners will have already heard that episode with Kira Jones. I don't remember Kira mentioning getting paid separately for writing an episode. Yeah, no. It seemed like it was just, yeah. if you're just in the room, you get paid that weekly rate, which sounds similar to mm-hmm. the rates that you were just mentioning. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting in Canada that you get paid to write an episode and then also like that's two additional paydays that American TV writers rooms do not get. That's wild. Yeah. I think it's also, um, I think most writers in the U S get, uh, it's usually a higher amount, but it depends on what role you're in. Mm-hmm. It's sure. our, we get paid less mm-hmm. per week, but more per scripts. But I think, and I may, and I could be correct on this. Cause I, from what I, my understanding is certain levels can have the opportunity to write a script, but not get additional payment. But if it's in your contract, you do like, it's, hmm. I don't know. Cause people hmm. do get paid for their episodes. My friend just wrote a freelance episode and it's on set right now for NCIS. Like, and she's a, oh, okay. like, she's working on the show in some capacity. And then she's gotten a freelance episode. She hundred percent gets paid for the episode. So I don't know how it all the, I'm sorry that I'm going to feign ignorance a bit because it is different yeah. and the way payments mm-hmm. break out are different. But in some cases, from what I understand, it's more that you get paid up front. You don't get a secondary payment if it gets made. So you just mm-hmm. get Yeah, paid. the secondary payment I've definitely never no, heard No, that's of. very much Canadian. So you get less kind of upfront, but then you get, then what happens is it allows you for like, if you're working on a bigger budget thing, you're not like, you, you, you get paid accordingly. Like mm-hmm. you got that's, this yeah, made, you get paid, which is great. Yeah. And it's really helpful. It's very helpful. <laughs> yeah. So, so we just so to to kind of cap it, we did like the um the development room in 2020 that it took until February 2021 for it to be greenlit mm-hmm. because they wanted to see season one out because of everything pandemic things got delayed. So February 2021 we were greenlit and we, the room went back into session as it were. Writing in Canada, so I am a Canadian resident and I split my time between the U.S. and Canada, but. I spend more than six months in Canada. I have a residence there. Like I, I split my time because there's tax implications for productions for the people working on it. So for me, I'm very mindful of that. Um, In 2018, I went back for a program and was living in Canada. And so I, that's my prime, my primary residence. This is my secondary, but I split my time between the two places. Cool. And pay taxes in both (laughs) countries. (laughs) Delightful. Yeah. Of course. I have two questions now, actually, because you brought that up, but I'll go back to my first one because you brought up runway. So if you could back up a little bit, when we first Mm -hmm. met, you were working a full-time job. And then I know you quit Mm -hmm. at some point to pursue this full-time Can you just talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about how you were able to basically make ends meet? Like, I think people don't talk about that enough about the pursuit and what is going on for you financially until you actually start getting paid (laughs) to make stuff. Yes. I worked a full-time job for a very long time. It feels like, no, I worked, I, I always say to my, say to people that I truly believe I worked two jobs for most of my life. Mm -hmm. I worked, I was a writer and director and I was also a strategist, journalist, like those jobs, Mm -hmm. like advertising exact, like those are the jobs that I worked 
alongside of each other, because I don't think that it is fair to ever say, like, I, I hate the word hobbyist mm, yeah. because I believe those who, who are in the pursuit of that as a career are not hobbyists. They are working their butts off to do both jobs and do them well so that they can survive. Mm -hmm. I come from no means, like my family, <laughs> we were very poor and like, I've had to work my whole life because there's nowhere to fall back on. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so for me, I had to work that job. So I was, I moved up the ranks within the advertising world and I was able to just, I started saving money. And for me, I had put a date, an arbitrary date of February, 2019, that I was going to quit and just start doing stuff. But I was terrified because well, what is that stuff? How am I going to work? Like I, it was terrifying to me. Mm -hmm. And then through, I think like there's an element of always serendipity, but also like the hard work paid off. And I got into the pro, this program called the Canadian Film Center Primetime TV Program. So it's similar to the WB program in the States or CBS, NBC, mm -hmm. all those. The studio fellowship the studio track. Yes, that would be a more concise way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just like, is there something else that I haven't heard of and haven't no. applied for yet? Oh, God, I better write this down. <laughs> There's so many. I will not list them all because I have a board full of them. <laughs> so I got into that program. And this is where also like, so the program, they're serendipity and that they accept six people into the program a year. Wow. And then you have that. I'd never applied before. I, I didn't live in Toronto. Like I didn't even live. I hadn't been in Canada other than to see my family for years. Mm. So I was like, okay, this is happening. And then at work, they were doing a lot. They were doing layoffs. So I privately talked to my boss and I, well, if you're listening, I got into the program. But I didn't tell anyone that I got in the program. Mm. And so what I did was just went, I want to do other things, which is true. And so I would like to give up my position. And if you can make it happen, I'd like to be laid off in the mm. next round of, of layoffs. Because I'd been at the company for three and a half years. I got, I think, two weeks or three weeks for every year I was there. So that pay, if I could stretch it, plus my savings. Mm -hmm. It just meant that I had time mm -hmm. and this program I was going into was five and a half months, no pay full time. Wow. Now. So I look back if that was me 10 years before I could never have done it. So I feel grateful, but it was the hard work that I put in that allowed me to do that, mm -hmm. but not everyone has that, that ability. And so it's, yeah, there's a lot of things that we need to look at in terms of like that, that program changed my life. Mm. It gave me space as part of it. We did like, we worked the showrunner and we, it was like you, you created, like you did like a fake room, but you didn't do a fake room. We wrote seven episodes of television as a room. We broke a season of the, the showrunner show. She wrote the pilot. The six of us in the room wrote, yes, or six. I was like trying to recall. Yes, or six. The six <laughs> of us wrote the episodes and we're in the trenches together as if we were, so we were in a writer's room and the second half you develop your own pilot. You're taking out and pitching to production companies. You're pitching to major studios in Canada. You are making also the cohorts that you'll continue to work with and be friends with who, who are doing to me, like the people that I was with are all at different levels after the program, but we're all in it together. And I think that's like, we're not in competition with each other. We're there to, to rise each other up and mm -hmm. all, you know, 
carry the load together. So this program changed everything for me. It got me my agent. It allowed me to feel forward progression. Then I got into the Chorus Writers Apprentice program that got me into the internship. Like, so all those layers, my show got optioned. My next show got optioned. I have a third show about to be optioned. Like, wow, congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) But speculative work. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing speculative work, like not just like, here's a pitch, but here's a script. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's months of time. Right. So really time is most important. And so it's not that I didn't have to take other pieces of work. On Facebook, someone's like, we need someone to write this marketing script for a 24-hour conference. I'm like, wow, a 24-hour conference is insane. That's wild. So I'm like, okay, me, I can do that. I was in marketing. I can do a script. So I wrote, like, I had to turn around in like, I don't know, four days. It was like wild. And and I first, like, I just like quoted a, I don't know, a high number. And then I I got it. <laughs> and then um, I was like, great, that's going to give me another X amount of time. So it's just like buying time. And then I realized, like, um, I wrote some, a friend of mine, I was so grateful for, had me write some articles for a company of his, because I I'm a, was a journalist as well as marketing. So I was like writing articles and I, you know, for a good pay, because he was like, it, for me, it was like, I was helping him, but he was really helping me. So again, in the bank, mm-hmm. I also realized is like, how can I find jobs the best I can that can give me um, that I can work on for a concentrated period of time that also pays me my worth. And so even with these freelance jobs, because I've had this corporate experience and I've had this experience in journalism and marketing, I would try to find things if things came my way to make sure to choose things that were high value that took less time because I went for jobs and they, they would pay poorly. Like I went like a friend's like, Hey, do you want to work this thing? Do you want to write these articles? And the pay was so bad mm. that I'm like, and it's going to take me so much time it's actually not even worth it for that amount. I just hope that something happens in the next three months and it all worked out. I had to believe enough in myself to know that something would happen. Mm -hmm. And I had to just like be brave, which is really hard when you've like scrapped your way up Yeah, that it was hard. I will say too, because I want to be transparent is that my partner, my husband does have a job. Mm -hmm. And so our agreement is based on percentages of how much we make. So he, he supports a little more financially, Yeah. but all my, everything of my own travel accommodation, like payment of like rent in Toronto, those are mine. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I have to pay. So I have output regardless. And we've discussed this. He's like, if you can't pay for those things, you have to get a job and pay for mm-hmm. those things. Like there's a, only so much like we have to we are partners and we were in this together and this is all of ours but we also have to be we have to contribute so there was like a discussion that had to be had about what is this time frame Mm -hmm. and also like what is our contribution because I want to be fair it's also not fair on him to put the load of that Mm -hmm. on him but I do think that that allowed me to have more flexibility than I normally would have had or I would have had to like immensely downsize and like there's things that I could have done that would have taken like my expenses down to a place of what I'm paying now anyway. Right. But I'd like to live with my husband. Yeah. <laughs> as so, much as I can. So I, I have a similar sort of situation with my husband as well. And so uh, yeah, I appreciate you sharing all that because I think so often people are like, you just need to quit your job and go for it and be brave without having any of that context. And I know even for me personally, who I did quit my job in 2020, I was primarily able to do that because I have a partner 
who is able mm-hmm. to kind of cover our like living ability to live generally, you know? And so, yeah, yeah, it's, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. But I also had to be comfortable. Like, you know, what, what, what am I doing? Like I work every day mm-hmm. more than nine to five Yep. when I'm in a room or not in a room, when I'm in a room or working a project, I'm also like working on something else. Yeah, absolutely. Because like there is my projects that I know are my lottery tickets that I hope will get me the next job or the next thing. There's me developing relationships because they're so important in this business to continue to develop relationships and find the people that you want to work with and the people that you jive with and the people that you want to create with. And then there's also like the job you're actually doing, Mm -hmm. which you must do well. Right. And so it's like, it's a combination of those things. I started working a full, not, I started working jobs when I was 14. I had two jobs when I was 14 Mm -hmm. until I was not for like for many years. Yeah. So I've had to pay for myself since I was a young teenager. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of drive doesn't go away when you come from a place where you're not eating. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to be like, well, I'll just, I just will take a break even when I need to take a break. Like this is not healthy. Sometimes like you need to take breaks. You need to have moments to think you need to go out of your home and now or like walk around. Oh, I said like visit the squirrels. I don't know whatever you need to do. Um, (laughs) But you need to have those breaks. And when, like this morning, I was talking to my sister even, and I'm like, I had two really stressful days. Everything ran long. Things weren't going right. This morning, I really, I had a whole morning. I'm like, I'm going to, I need to rewrite this teaser for something. Again, Mm -hmm. a script that's speculative. And I was talking to my sister because it's with a character who has anxiety, anxiety disorder. And I wanted to ask her a few questions about how I can create like family members, like things they can do that could help this girl in a more concrete way. I wanted, really wanted her experience. And I said, yeah, I'm just feeling so spent from these two days of being kind of overwhelmed that I, I'm having a hard time getting into the writing. And she's like, why don't you just take the morning off? Mm-hmm. It's okay. And I think too, like maintaining our mental health when you're a freelancer and you're a writer for hire is, is just as important as anything. And at any time yeah. we feel the inclination to always be working because we don't know when we'll be fed next yeah. as terms of like our work it's, but it's important to maintain our mental health and take those breaks when we need it and not feel like it's weakness that it's okay to. And, and it's hard when like I've worked a corporate background of like advertising and marketing where you have no time off. Mm-hmm. But to take yourself out of that mentality and make sure that you don't burn yourself out so that you are not only ready in terms of the work that you have, like, you know, when I'm going up for a job, they're like, okay, do you have a sample of a rom-com? Do you have a sample of this and sample of this? Yep. I have those samples, but I, I can't, if I give them those samples and I am burnt out, I, I won't be able to write well for them. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you have to have that balance or when you, when the call comes, Mm-hmm. you will not be ready for it because it's not about just the work you do. It's about the mental health and what you bring to it in terms of you as a whole person. Yeah, absolutely. That's so important. And that, that's something I struggle with as well and not ongoingly because I have a definitely a hard time embracing the fact that I need to be like ready to turn on for these meetings, which means I need to have some moments where I'm not just like, planning and planning and and obsessing over what needs to be done and what I'm not doing. Yeah. And and I also come from a very similar childhood and so it's hard for me to like divorce 
value, like the how I spend my time and there being value in that when there isn't money being made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. And it's, I, I will say this, like, I, I will say like when you're creating these things too, I think what I, I get, I was getting myself into a mindset of this script, like, especially when you're thinking of like speculative scripts, because that is part of writing for hire. Cause it's like, you're being hired for things, but also like here are more samples to help me show people that I can write. Mm -hmm. what they need me to write. Like, yes, I know I can write that, but if you can't see it, people have a hard time connecting the dots. Um, so it's like, sometimes it's like, I want to be able to show them I can write something that I really want to write. So it's about me, what I want to write. So I'm I'm demonstrating that. But I remember like last year I was writing the script and I was like, I was workshopping with people and I, everything. And then I kind of, it was like, surprise. (laughs) Like my managers were like, yeah, sure. Do a redraft of that thing that my, that I'd taken to my agent before my managers came on board. And so they're like, yeah, okay, go ahead and give it a try. So I wrote and wrote and wrote it, but it felt too much like what's going on now. It's not about a pandemic, but it, it was a big world of it had happened. Mm-hmm. So it felt too soon. And it was anxiety, like people, it made people <laughs> anxious, but I'd been heads down writing it for six months. And I'm like, okay, this script is going to get me meetings and it will get me jobs and it'll get me out there. And then they said, we can't take this out. Like, because it's not that it's, it's well-written, it's well-constructed. There's the market is not going to be receptive to this because it's just, it, it feels so much like what's happening right now. And right now the market wants like 5 million Ted Lassos as (laughs) does all the audience, right? Like all the audience wants it too. So I don't think that that means like, throw it in the garbage. I think it's about being mindful that things are in cycles and sometimes this isn't the right cycle for it. So you put it down and you let it sit there and in a year, you don't know, it could be the right time for that. So I think it's like, it's not a waste, but at that moment in time, like, I'll be honest, I like, I finished my call and I hung up the phone. They're like, it's okay, Heather, just work on something else. Like, you're really talented. Like, da da da. You got just like do something like with like a little more humor, like your other piece, and like and like whatever. Like, gave me the stuff, and I was like, okay, okay. And then I hung up the phone and I sobbed. Mm-hmm. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I'm like this, and I went for made my husband go for. A walk. I'm like, I need to get out of this house. I need to go for a walk. I I I don't know what to do. I'm broken inside because I. Not that I don't have other ideas waiting, but those ideas take time and I'm missing the window because mm. June, people are looking at things. They're getting prepared for the second half of the year, looking, getting prepared to buy. I'm like, and, and I kind of said, like, I'm screwed up. I screwed up. I screwed up. I should have known. And like, I didn't know. Like, how did I know? Like, I, I genuinely was telling a story I wanted to tell. And I was, and then I <laughs> proceeded. I'm like, well, fine. I'm just going to keep. I'm going to write, I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it better. And so I spent another uh, two months <laughs> trying to make it better. And then I realized, no, I just have to put it down. And that was a hard thing to do. And then I wrote something else that my managers love and we have a meeting on Monday that I hopefully will be to finalize and then go out. So that's why I'm saying like everyone around you, you need to like get on board and you're, you want everyone to be your advocate mm-hmm. as well as you be your advocate for them. It wasn't them being like cruel to me and being like, and it's not me being like, well, I can stand up for my creative thing and, and I know it, it's going to be good. I recognized what they said in that moment and understood what they meant. But it's still in my, my head, that was the only thing I'm going, even though I have lots of other things, projects on the go, it just, it just made me realize, yeah, you have to, 
I don't know. I, I put so much of my, my self-worth into that having to be successful mm. that in that moment or like put it in the drawer felt like I had failed and I will never do anything ever again, even though that's not even true, but that's mm-hmm. how I felt at the time. Yeah. yeah. I had a, a question because like <laughs> truly like half an hour ago, we were talking about you getting connected to the Netflix film and you had a script that you could send in as an example of your horror writing, even though it obviously wasn't mm-hmm. what they were looking for. And you mentioned that that script had come, you had written oh, yeah. it on spec for two directors. And so I, I was curious about just like that process, like what mm-hmm. that, what ended up happening with that. But the other thing that I was wondering is, are you able to use the scripts that you're writing that don't end up going anywhere as samples? What is the like, you know, the ethics of Mm -hmm. this project didn't go anywhere, but it's still a good sample for me if somebody else asked you to write it. So I I was just like curious, like, are, is there ever a point where you're not allowed to use a script, even if it's not being produced as a representation of yourself or because you wrote it, it's always cool as long as everybody else like keeps it under the table. So those are my, my Mm -hmm. high level two questions about that, that feature that you were mentioning. I asked permission. I basically, okay. The project I did are with, I will say, I think it's two extremely talented directors and creators, um, Kyle Kelly and Adam Brown. So I, with them as part of Film Shop, which is a collective in New York, LA, New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So they were the first place when I first moved to New York, I knew no one and especially no one in film. And I met uh, Stacey Capone and Don Downey at an event because they were at everything. It was February. It was like, I was in New York. I'd been in New York for two months. And I was screening a web series that I made at at the time there was an event called Big Screen, Little Screen, and they do web series and things. So I had my, because I was like, well, the best way to meet people in film is to be at a place where people in film are. And so I put my thing in and, and they said, yes. And then I was there and they loved it, came up to me afterwards and said, that was great. And we talked and like, where do you live? And we ended up living like five blocks away from each other. So we've become really good friends. But then Dawn and Stacey also introduced me into so many parts of the film community in New York. They're such generous people. And so that's how I met so many people in the community was because of them. And then I was able to join Film Shop and I was able to like meet more people and create with people. So Kyle has been a DP for a couple of my projects. Adam is just someone like we would go and sit in bars and write together. Um, so we've all known each other and had worked with each other in some capacity. So they knew my writing and they came to me and said, we have an idea and we'd like to see if you want to write it. And so I know their style. And so we basically, they said, look, we can pay you for a draft of this, just one draft. And then we'll see what happens. And also we'll see if we like working with each other. Mm-hmm that's fair. And it was like what they could afford. They paid for it out of their pocket, but they like, you deserve to be paid. I was like, you got, and here's a contract. (laughs) And I'm like, you guys are amazing. And it was, you know, it was a decent contract and we tried to go WGA, but they're like, they're like, yeah, you can put it as a digital contract, which could be any amount of money. But then if it does go like theatrical, then you owe owe, owe her all this money. And they're like, well, we can't do that just in case. So we did end up doing like a non non-union contract at a very low budget level film. And I wrote the first draft. We loved working together. We loved the draft. Like we loved it, but they're like, look, we want you to write more. We can't afford to pay you what we paid you for the first draft. So what we're going to do is you're going to become an EP on the film. So we have creative say collectively. Mm. And then, um, what we'll do is we'll promise you this percentage of budget up to this amount of money will be how much you're paid 
when we go into production and you get these points in the back end. What I will say on features, points in the back end mean nothing. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, isn't it like 3% of features even make their money back, let alone make a profit? Well, they won't because you used to teach creative percent. accounting. They're not going <laughs> to. Yeah, yeah. But, the, right. but they're not really going to. Yeah. <laughs> there will always mm-hmm. be, there will always be uh, marketing costs eating up whatever profit there could yeah. possibly be. Yes. Yeah. Back end points in a feature is the same as uh, like shares at a media startup. <laughs> they're all <laughs> nothing. They are worthless. <laughs> yes. So it's not that you shouldn't make sure you have them, but if you're going to push on a negotiation point, it should be the amount of money that you're getting up front for a feature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also like what rights you have to other things. So in negotiating, in this case, it was because they came to you with an idea. It's a little different, but not always. Like you can negotiate as a writer. Like I also want to have first refusal of the comic books or like whatever mm-hmm. things you decide, like mm-hmm. like any kind of like spinoffs, like you need to be part of that. Like you can negotiate those things, or if there's gonna be a second feature that you get first rights of refusal, like you can negotiate those points and to make sure that you're protected. Like one thing we wrote that didn't go anywhere. One project was like, like if there's, you want to be like, okay, if there's action figures, like, I don't know, like anything you could, there's so many things you can do. Did you guys have like a standard contract template that you're working off? Was this all like, you know, blank page, you wrote it up together. Where did you get all this language? Um, I think they must've gotten the language from something they've worked on before, which I feel like is kind of how I've done contracts too, like cobbling sure. together contracts. So what we did is we, that's how we did it. And then we kind of have a little bit more of a say collectively, but I think also like this never came to pass with this project, but I think it's okay to be like, if this project is going to go down a path that I don't want to go, it's okay to say I'm done. And like I, I at times you have to go like, if this is going down this path, is this the thing I want to do and spend my time on? And if you're getting paid enough, some people will be like, it doesn't matter. For other cases, I was like, no, I don't think that's the right path for me. I'm going to be prepared to leave if it doesn't go the path that I really believe in and be prepared to be okay to walk away. Like, I think same thing with any kind of contract negotiation. If you have a line in the sand that you've drawn and you really say you're not going to go over that, then, then you have to be prepared to be like, it's not going to happen and be okay with it. But guess what? There's always other things and you can take it to other people. And like, it, it feels like it's like this or nothing, but that's never the case. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other creators and production companies. And like, there are so many things. So I think it's like, you have to be like, no, this is what I believe in. And this is, this is why I want to do this. And I think that's important as a writer, because a lot of times we take the heavy burden at the start. And I think that in, in saying that you have to be really aware of if I'm doing this project, how much, of, how much burden am I taking? And if it's something you're not believing in anymore or something where you're like, I just don't like working with these people, which isn't the case with us. But like, if that does come to that point, it is better for your everything because the project will suffer. The writing will suffer. The relationship you will, will suffer. suffer. You will yeah. suffer. <laughs> So it's like being aware of like, is this, if this isn't working, it's okay to say, you know what, this isn't working, but I've done my job, fulfilled my contractual obligations. And so I'm going to just, I, I'm not able to continue and that's okay. And, and the, the contract still stays in place in terms of like what your, your rights are in terms of like, and then with rewrites, if someone writes more than a certain percentage, like there's like things can change in terms of like how much credit they get and so forth. Sure. And so did that project ever end up getting made? Is it kind of backburnered? So it is 
let's say it's virus adjacent. <laughs> sure. Okay. So it, uh, we had a Canadian production company really interested in 2019. Sure. But because the directors were American, they couldn't go for it because mm, got it. tax credits and they often need a full like uh, 10 out of 10. So it means 10 of the major components of the film have to be Canadian. Usually it's 10 mm. out of 10. Some can do eight out of 10, but the directors are like usually a deal breaker. Like right. they have to be Canadian. So they kept joking. Like we can find Canadian girlfriends. The one just got married. So like, no, <laughs> but um, we were joking about like, can we just wear plaid? Like, is that cool? Like, <laughs> we were trying to like joke about it. But so my team in the U S came on board at the end of 2019. You'll probably figure out where this is going to. Um, we basically in February of 2020 discussed taking it out we created a list of people wanted to take it to in march 2020 when things just started happening but we weren't sure of the long-term effects we took it out to three companies to test the water and the first one came back saying we are not doing virus related content mm. and then we realized at that point this has to go on a shelf sure so what was great is that we then entered it into we were a finalist in the page award with that script that year so like we at least got some things behind it. I think we were second rounder at Austin with it. So I think like we just put in a couple of places to see like reception mm. um, outside of like this. But then for us, we're just going to sit up, but then it can act as a sample for horror features. Sure. And I guess since you're an executive producer at this point and, and have the more control, you're not just the writer yeah. um, anymore, you do have a little bit more control. So that definitely answers that question. I am curious, though, now that you mention it about like screenwriting contests, are they credited as writers? How do you work uh, like, you know, you, you mentioned we, you know, got into uh, Page Awards and Austin Film Festival, but is it technically you on the page or are you all sort of like equal stakes you you split the cost of a submission like mm -hmm. how does screenwriting competitions work when you're working with people who don't technically come into play until mm -hmm. production in this case they are us uh, it's story by is the credit that they have mm -hmm. got it okay so they have story by though like it's interesting like it's such a funny thing because i've contributed lots of the story too but mm -hmm. it's just how you create your initial contract and like the story, sure. the story you generated from them, it is their world that they wanted to build hundred percent came from them. And then I just help just like I did for lethal love. Like you bring yourself into it and you bring mm. your experiences into it because you're reading it, you're mm -hmm. embodying, you're, you're making it come to life. I think like for the page awards, for instance, like I put it under, we put it under my name. And then when it came to us being in the semifinalists, I think I, I said to them, look, these two, these are the story by, and I want to make sure there's no place to put that as credit, but I want to make sure that you don't think that there's anything underhanded going on. I just sure. want you to know that this is like the situation. So then what they did is they just put them, uh, the three of us on as writers. Got it. But, but again, it's like, it was a weird situation because though it was, we had a contract amongst us, they weren't really a production company. It wasn't a production company optioning my work. Mm -hmm. So sure. it's, it's just more that we collectively had have agreement amongst ourselves to not screw each other over. Right. Is what Got that it. is. <laughs> it's all of your script. You just happen to be the writer. Yes. Yes. Okay. I see. Very cool. Okay. Christina, the Canada of it all. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm just curious about like how it works for you to be living both in Toronto and in New York. And I guess like as sort of a this is very American of me, but if I had the opportunity to just live and work in Canada, I feel like I would go all in on Canada and like not bother with the U.S. and have to pay to mm -hmm. 
for two places to live and pay for, you know, two tax systems and all of that. And so I'm just curious, like, what, why even stay here at all? I assume your husband factors mm-hmm. in, um, but maybe not. Yes. Maybe he can just leave and go to Canada too. It's a, yeah, there is like my my husband loves Toronto, mm-hmm. which is where I work and live. And so he splits his time. Like I'll go, I'll be there more than him, but he also comes to at some mm-hmm. points in time because it's nice that we don't have to be for an entire like six plus months. So so it's great because like we have our, we have a place there that I cover and then he has a place here that he like so we cover each of us covers a place mm-hmm. basically i think really like canada is a smaller market since 2017 the wga said that we have we now make 50 percent less shows since oh 2017 wow yes i think there are executives coming in and trying to change that i think bell has been really interesting because they now have crave which is a streaming network that has a lot of hbo content and they're looking for content to go alongside of it they're really trying to create new different content the cbc has cbc gem like there's more con- there, there there are places trying to create what they can amazon is open shop that is creating canadian specific content netflix is just open shop just announced that they're starting to see people for the first time to create canadian specific content mm-hmm. but canada acts as a, a service center for american shows mm-hmm. so there's tons of stuff being made in canada but the writers right. and the leads lead actors are not Canadian a lot mm-hmm. of the time, unless sure. you've gone to the States and you work in the States, mm-hmm. there is a great exodus of talent. A lot of the times there are people who decide I'm just going to work, I, not just, I am going to work here and invest my time into the market that I really believe in. And I want to grow and be better. I think there's a lot of talent in Canada. There's a lot of talented shows being created. There's a lot of amazing shows that like, there's a show on CBC called sort of that's absolutely beautiful. You should Great. watch it. I think it's yeah. on HBO Max now. Yeah, I loved it. There's so many things. Uh, the Porter is coming out. Marsha Green is one of the people who was part of the creation of it. And it's about the Black Porters in Canada and talking about kind of, you know, issues around that historically in terms of like, there's gonna be a lot of things that I don't know about yet because I haven't watched the show, but it's coming out February 21st. And so I think there's a lot of amazing content that's being created, but there's just limited so there's a lot of development that happens in Canada, but not a lot of things that can get made because there's only limited spots. So even though there's a lot of, I feel like I always meet genre writers, it's also not as much genre. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so though I do also write family drama, because I believe I write family drama with a lens of supernatural and family drama with lens without a supernatural. Mm-hmm. I think they're all, I don't think it really matters, but people do have a very specific perception. There's a lot of content being made. That's usually most of the genre everyone says is out in BC, but again, just not as much stuff. But like you have Dennis Heaton, he did The Order. He has a new show called The Imperfects that will be on Netflix. They're creating Reginald the Vampire with sci-fi out there right now. Like there's a bunch of shows that are being written and created in Canada. A new show called Astrid and Lily Save the World that just came out, but that was written in Toronto. It was Blue Ice Pictures and sci-fi. So sci-fi loves working in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, So they work in Canada, but they also support Canadian writers in Canada too. So I think for me and is this is what's been really interesting is that I hadn't lived in Canada for a long time. I'd never worked in the industry in Canada. I got into the program in 2018. I went to Canada and then I learned about this whole thing about <laughs> residency and how important it is tax credits. And when you're a junior writer, you don't want anything to be in your way for like a junior TV writer. Mm-hmm. Cause like, sure. doesn't matter how many features I could have written like 5 million features. It doesn't matter because it's about the experience in television, which is different. Right. So you come into that market. You don't want anything to be a no. 
mm-hmm. right? You don't want, right. just, just as when you write a script, you don't want any element of it to like be a, a no, because then it's never going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I think what just having to remember that and being able to, for me, it's like, okay, I'm going to spend my time and invest my time. And what I do is that I make sure I support the creators, that's producers, writers, whomever. I make sure that I, I support them so that I'm physically there. Like when at the time that you could be, Mm -hmm. I'd be physically there. And if not physically there, when things move to zoom, I'm there digitally supporting them. Mm -hmm. And so they'll be like, you're here. And I'm like, yes, because you, I always have to make myself seem as available as possible. So I, I spend time in LA as well, talking to people, meeting with people. And unfortunately, because of the last two years and I have, I have asthma and, and, and then very, mm-hmm. I get, I get very sick when I same, get sick. Same. So yep. do. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All three of us. Asthma club. <laughs> um, asthma club. So I, for me, I, I can only, I've only been, I've been driving. So I drive between mm. Canada and the U.S. So for me, it's like important to maintain those relationships, but it's not just through like opportunism and I'm going to see them and I'm going to like bug them. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm coming there to support them because it's important for us all to support each other. And I think by showing that you are there to support but and that you're there to be a cheerleader because you want to be, because it's important for us to like, because guess what? Making stuff is really hard. Yeah. The fact that you can get something made, like I, I, Think about this when seasons, like after one season, something gets canceled. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know how hard it was to get the thing made? Like the fact yeah. that you have to like, like have an idea, get it to a, like get a producer on board and then get a network on board. And they get, I don't know, sometimes a studio on board. And then you have to like make sometimes a pilot. And then do they like the pilot? Okay. Now we're going to make a season and then you're going to get out there. And then they're going to say no, like, oh my, that's so many years and time and so much hard work. So every moment we have success, we must cheer ourselves, each other on, but also as someone who is like writing in both markets, being there is also, it's a reminder to people that I exist as a human and that I would like to work with them. So it kind of does two things, but I try to make my, always my primary purpose is not because I want, it's not false. I truly want to support. And then I also try to mentor as much as possible as well because I think it's important to mentor because as I, I hopefully like will be a showrunner one day where I can hire people or if someone asks me, I can recommend people mm-hmm. as writers. We're all in this together and we all move up at different levels. Like we are all helping each other. And when you're a writer for hire, like that is more important in any capacity It's more important than anything because your jobs, 95% of the time are coming from other writers recommending sure. you. Like when you go for staffing, it's not just like your agent puts your word, your script in you need people to recommend you to Mm -hmm. even to be read sometimes. So like you want to build these relationships, but then equally, if someone asks me to to talk on their behalf, I will as well. So I think it's like a very mutual environment for us. So you're building community that helps us all in terms of that process of creating. Makes sense. So in, in like the idealized future, would you be full-time Canada? Would, do you kind of like kind of playing the field? Like what, what is your 10 year idealized? This is where my career is and life is centered. I think it's a hard question. Yeah. (laughs) And I, and I say that because none of us even know what's happening tomorrow. Like tomorrow could be the phone call that changes anything. So I think what I try to do is I try to think in a couple of ways. Every year in December, I create a plan for the year ahead and I plan out when I'm going to write and what I'm going to write. If I, for instance, have no jobs, I just pretend as if I'm not ever going to work again, which (laughs) 
that's really would be hard to live. But so I kind of things that are within my control in my plans. And then I talk with my team, like we'll talk at the beginning, we talk monthly and I talk, so I have uh, two agents. Um, so I have Sir Rob and Carl from Sir Rob Merchant and Carl Lieberman at the characters in Canada. And then I have Chelsea Benson, Dave Brown and Keegan Schell and uh, from Echo Lake in the States. So there's a lot of people <laughs> that's how they work, but the five of us get together once a month and talk about what's going on. But at the beginning of the year, we talk about like, what is the plan for the year? Who mm-hmm. do you want to meet? Who do you want to target? What are you working on? That kind of thing, you know, being really strategic. I, we figure that out. And this year we're like, no, we want to make sure that we maintain um, your Canadian residency still, because then I can work next year in Canada. Cause it's about your tax, the tax season. So next year. Got it. Okay. You have to work a full year in Canada before you are able to be relevant, you know, be able to be a resident. So you have to have mm, a year. Got it. Okay. So for us, like our plan for this year is to maintain the residency in can like to make sure that I'm in Canada and maintain my residency in Canada mm. and maintain like, you know, all of my residential ties, which I have, as well as physically being there, which I, I will do. And I think like, for us, it's like, it's important. They're like, it's important for you to have opportunities in both places, which is what I, how is like what I came into it um, with. Like I have, I'm meeting people in LA. I have teams out there. I have projects with companies that are both in LA and Canada, but I think for us, we're like, let's see what the year happens. And then, so for me, I now know what this year will be Mm -hmm. in terms of just like where I physically will be. And then we'll see how work is because we don't know. Right. And like, sure. I have shows to go out to, to pitch, like who knows? And I'm writing new things, but I think like, I'm trying to think in like these one year chunks because so many things change as industry. You just don't know. So like something may just change and it may be like, okay, now you're writing on a show in the U S so that's where you're going to be. And maybe that's where I'll be continually full time. Or I know a lot of people who go to the States for a certain amount of time and then they, their credits build. And then like, you know, they come back to Canada and decide, actually, I want to just stay in Canada and work my career here. Mm -hmm. Or some people go back and forth because they are now kind of at a place where people want to buy from them because they have the clout and the Mm -hmm. ability and the talent. And so they're like, great. Like if you are willing to be here too, we'd love to have you. So I think like, it's about just leaving those doors open and making sure that you maintain the relationships with the people that you love to work with and that you want to work with in the future and support each other. But for me, it's just like keeping those doors open to see, like, I feel like it's like um, sliding doors, but like see which door is the one I have to walk through this year and be open for whatever. And I'm really grateful that I have a partner that is able to like be there for me and has said, wherever you want to go, you can go like, go where you need to. It's your career. I will support you. Like emotionally is really what it is. I will Mm -hmm. support you emotionally because he has to sacrifice. Like we both are spend time apart. We have a relationship where we are often not living together. And it's not because we don't love each other and want to, it's because he knows how important this is. He like, I hear him like, like, cause our offices are next to each other. Cause we have like, we moved further out in New York to have more space. Mm-hmm. So we have our own spaces. Thank goodness. But I hear sometimes being like, Oh, my wife, I'm so proud of her. And like, I hear that. And it's just like, Oh, I still listen to all your conversations. Say good things about me. <laughs> um, but I think it's so important to have that, that there's a, someone who believes in you and is there on the bad days and, and there when it's bad. And he says, you know, that there's with the bad, the next day comes the good, like it's a swing mm-hmm. and like, 
the days that like you don't get the, you go up for a lot this business there's a million no's and you have to be okay with that and i think the thing that makes me okay with that is that i am also creating on my own the things that i love and if i didn't create my own work it would be so devastating so i think like by maintaining that balance of things that i control that i own at this moment in time when it goes mm-hmm. out to people and then it continues to develop with the great talent that you will work with and collaboration is so important as a writer for hire and i'll say unless you are writing your own thing with your own money <laughs> and you're doing it all yourself i don't mean every role yourself but you are the one who who's in control like you bring everything together then you have control of everything mm-hmm. but this business for features too is collaborative yeah so if you want to r- work in this business with other people's money th- there's collaboration and i think it's about finding the right people to collaborate with but it is a collaborative business if you don't want to collaborate and i, I I don't know. I guess I was gonna say right now, but that's not even true because you have editors and they, you have to, mm-hmm. you have to yeah. like make changes too. So none of it is like, it's, I think art in some elements and especially this type of art is, is so collaborative. And we sometimes forget like all the people bring talents to it and you are creating a blueprint for something glorious is what you always hope. Absolutely. Yeah, no, definitely. So you introduced yourself as a writer director at the beginning of this episode. We've only talked about writing so far. So I'm curious, what has been filling your director's cup recently? Do you have opportunities coming up? Do you is there? Do you want to like direct for features? Do you want to direct for TV? Do you want to do a little of both? Like what's what's going on in the directing world right now for you? If I can add to that. Do you Mm -hmm. do you feel like directing has to be kind of on the back burner in order to pursue writing? So I chose, so my agents will represent me both as a writer director, like when I signed on with them, but I chose to focus them on writing because I feel like when this, I feel like the smarter thing to do when you have a representation is to be as focused as possible with them. Because if I'm like, I'm a writer and I write in all these areas and I'm also a director Mm -hmm. and I've mostly done, um, like I've done documentary things, but also in shorts, like shorts and, and short series, right. In the space of, as direct, as a director. And I think for me, I really wanted to be focused on getting into a writer's room for TV. Now I, I write features. Like it just happened that a feature, like that just all happened at the same time, but that was the approach that I had because I was worried that I mean, it's still, it's so hard to be a director and I know some amazing directors in Canada and it's all hard. I feel like I'm guessing and saying there may be more options in some ways as a director, but not really if I think about it. So like, I don't know. (laughs) I just felt like I didn't want to pull attention. I felt like, okay, this is like, if I get in writer's rooms and the higher I get up in writer's rooms, when I go to sell something as an original project, I get more ability for people to allow me to, to, to eventually just show run my mm-hmm. own show or co-show run or whatever. When you're a junior mm-hmm. writer, when you're considered like, oh, you've done story, you've been a story editor. Great. So we're going to bring in a, sh- a show runner and they're going to shape the show with you. Like there's mm-hmm. all these added layers. You get paid less, you get less everything. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's not because you're not valuable and worth something. It's just that they can't use you to sell the project. Now, ultimately everything boils down to commerce, right? It's not, mm-hmm. Dependent on the 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 people, I feel like you know there's certain, and I say this sometimes. This is more at a network level, but not always. Like it, there's certain people who are like, okay, like yeah, great, we're gonna give you a mentor. Like everyone has different relationships and different 
comfort levels. It's about trust. So it really depends on like how much they feel like we can risk. And sometimes like, well, if there's a lower budget, maybe we can risk more with someone than higher budgets where you're like, to be honest, like being a showrunner is both being a huge executive producer, like, oh, here's a show. It's two to whatever million episode. And you have never you've never done that. But like, it's like, Hey, it's a corporate job. And you're also creative. Like it's bonkers. Um, and so of course, like, I don't want to fail that because I want to learn and be successful. So, but, so I, I understand, I think you have to do both sides of it to, to build up. So I'm like, I need to be able to like, to me, I'm like, that's what I, I need to like focus the attention of my team on, on that. Mm-hmm. doesn't stop me from doing whatever I want because I can do whatever I want um, as a human. But it's also about like making sure that I'm fulfilling like my promises to my team too, of like, here's the stuff I'm working on. Mm-hmm. For me in the last two years, I have not wanted to, I have been on set for the Hardy Boys to see it like very safe and everything. But the thought, the daunting thought of creating anything that I could mm-hmm. create that I know on my own yeah. was too much. I was like, yeah. I can't, so I'm like, I'm going to focus on writing and when the time is right, I will create something. So coming up, there's a, a podcast project that isn't announced yet. So I can't really say that it's an anthology project that I've, I'd been asked to write or write and produce like direct aid an episode. So mm-hmm. that should be going into production. I believe like we'll probably record in March or April. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I will direct that it's a two-hander. I'll direct that. And then I'm currently writing a feature film for me. Okay. And it is probably the most, it's something that is the most personal of the thing that I've ever written in my life. And I, and I say that like everything I write is personal in some capacity. Everything has a piece <laughs> of me because it has to, it's like projects are like fractals. Like you're talking about often the same things, but in different lenses it's like a, your, your body of work is like a kaleidoscope and like it's showing different colors and sometimes of the same, but coming from the same place. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this is very much about like growing up with a parent with mental illness and the impacts it has on the children as carers and how hard it is to ask for help, but it's done through a horror lens. Now, I could easily write this and give it to someone else, but I can't, I can't. Yeah. To me, this is mine and it has to be told by me in all in those facets and those parts of the, the, the creation of it. Mm-hmm. And then to bring a team around me that is very sensitive to these things. We'll be, about, we'll be talking about things that are important to me in all of my work, um, destigmatizing poverty and destigmatizing mental illness mm-hmm. to take out the, th- the thing that makes me so angry often about there's so much misrepresentation around mental illness that we see on the screen, but also within horror, how often we make the people with mental illness, the monster, mm-hmm. they are not monsters. So for me, it's like, how do I tell this story that I've tried to tell in so many different ways and haven't found the, the words or the, the ways to say it. I feel like I finally found the way to talk about my personal experiences in a way that takes it away from it being autobiographical, but be reflective of the feeling and the experience of being in a war that no one can see. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's important that I make it 
And I understand like my manager's like, it has to be low budget. I was like, yes, I know. I know the rules. <laughs> I know, I know first time feature director is not, but, but I'm like, it's, I don't care. It's important. And I will do everything I can. And that will be mine to make. I am happy. And I think, I think it is about always, especially when you write in the capacity, we're all writers for hire eventually mm-hmm. that we need to find the projects that are ours like this, like, this is mine. Mm-hmm. This is mine. This is, has to be mine because it's the only way that I can tell it. And there's other things that I write that are mine in a different capacity that need these other voices to be part of because mm-hmm. collectively we make something even greater for me, this, this needs to be told by me in that capacity. So for me this year, as I like work on my TV projects, like that is something that I'm going to be putting out into the world and trying to find different elements of development and funding for it to try to get it made and make that really representative of how I think about story. And also a story that I want to tell because there are so many people who experience both of those things that don't get to see themselves on screen in, in a way that I think is more sensitive to who they are and what their experiences are. I agree. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. So final question, uh, obviously for hire, whether you're getting hired directly, whether you're going through like a fellowship program and getting hired off of that, obviously applications and interviews uh, and generals are, are a big part of maneuvering your for hire experience. So to, to kind of cap us off, if anyone has listened to all of this and is like, I want to do what Heather's doing, what are pieces of advice that you've had or have been given about interviewing, about generals, about, you know, submitting to fellowships that you think might be helpful? Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a couple of things. I feel like there's some programs and some places that have been very good for people who are not who are working those full-time jobs. I think there needs to be more opportunities. I'll just say mm-hmm. that for those mm-hmm. people. But I feel like, you know, something like Elm Shop for me was a way to be with other creators who also all work full-time. We all work full-time jobs. Anyways, that's a side note. There needs to be more opportunities for us who can't not work. And I think every experience you've had in life, this was told to me by Ben Watkins, who is a, a writer and actor. So I had the opportunity to interview Ben Watkins because a way that I find the way that I um, try to go to events to meet people is by writing for, I write for script magazine and I don't like, I don't get paid to do that, but what they will do is they will give me credentials to be able to go to conferences. Right. So Mm, that's cool. I went to the Toronto screenwriting conference and went and interviewed, I asked, I wanted to interview people. And I was specifically trying to like elevate voices we don't hear as much. So was re- focusing on women and people of color. Not that I didn't talk to other people too, but that's for me, I'm like, I just want to make sure we hear as many voices um, as we can and show the diversity of the talent that's out there that are creating. So I had the opportunity to talk to Ben Watkins, which is absolutely brilliant. He's, he is truly, um, I think he's truly remarkable because I feel like he's always wanting to help lift everyone up too, which I think is the best way to, to go. And like, I'm saying this from someone I've met, I follow him on Twitter and I, and I also like met him for that short window of time, but I felt like what he told me that I always carried with me after that moment was, um, he's like, everything we do in our life is a language that we have. I think a lot of times we think of ourselves as being, you know, only certain amount of dimensions, but every experience. So like I've been an immigrant, I've worked certain jobs. Those are languages I've, you know, 
been certain places, those are languages. And so thinking about that, the diversity of language that you have, all these different facets to bring. So when I go into a general, I hope I know more, as, like I, I think always being as prepared as possible. I have a post-it sure. note that's right here because everyone forgets. I have a post-it note that no one will see, but you will see. These are things that I've been watching. Oh, yeah. Else? That's, I need to make one of those. Every time someone's like, what are you watching right now? I'm like, I know I, know I just watched 17 different TV shows. Could not tell you a single one. Right. Yeah. So I have, I have this list that's a little more generalized, but they're in little buckets, right? Mm-hmm. So how I think about going into a general meeting is, again, everything is commerce. No, everything you have to think <laughs> about, you have to think about audience, right? Just as you're writing something, who's your audience? Mm-hmm. When you're going into any meeting and any interview, what is, who is your audience and what do they need from you? And so I could tell them all the facets of, I have so many different languages, but which languages did they want to hear, right? So if mm-hmm. they really want to just hear Spanish and French. I'm not going to speak Italian to them. I don't know. Sure. That's a very, like, <laughs> no, um, that, but, that totally makes sense to yeah. me. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I think like, I'm with you. What I try to do too, is like, I come in and I'm trying to share my, like, I know what kind of stuff they're working on. I try to cater what I tell them about to cater to them, understanding that I could write for the things that they're doing and why, like, why me is, is a biggest thing. So it's like, so when I'm, when they say, well, why are you, everyone will be like, well, why did you start to write? Well, and then you have to tell your spiel and like, tell your little thing. So sometimes I'll talk about, I'll talk about certain things. If it's feel like it's the right person, I'll talk about how I was doing a collective creation project. And I was talking about, oh, I will say to this all I've, I first started going to Weight Watchers when I was 11 years old. Wow. wow. From 11 until one, three weeks ago is when I canceled my Weight Watchers app. And I'm like, no more of this. I have basically been disordered, like eating in a disordered way for my entire life because of this experience. So, you know, sometimes there's well-meaning people in your life who are trying to help you. And there was a moment in my life where someone was trying to help me, like basically gave me a smaller piece of cake and to them, it was helping. And to me, it was like my bottom fell out of me. Like, I'm not good enough. Uh, Mm. You are seeing that I'm failing and I'm trying. And so I wrote about it. And I, and I talked about like, so we did this collective creation project and I, uh, what happened was I took that story about feeling so empty and I combined it with the story from one of the other women in our, um, she was part of our crew. And when she was younger, she used to cut herself. So with her permission and we discussed it, I wrote a piece that was about my experiences and her experiences collectively. Mm-hmm. My self-harm came in different ways, mostly related to food, right? Um, because I was uh I was coping, using it as a coping mechanism. So we so we do this show, and every night I would sit and just do this monologue about this. Women would come up to me afterwards and say, like, no one has ever I thought I was alone. So that's why I write. Though, like, I mean, it's night, so I'm a little tired, so I get a little more teary. <laughs> What I always say to people is like, there are stories in your life that are impactful that you, I think we all should be talking about that can help tell the story of you and why you write. These stories should be of your scars and not your wounds. Mm-hmm. And so we can't be in a place of listening or, or like creative, like business, sometimes in a place of selling when you're in a wound, a place of wounds. So I'm like, be within a place of scars. So mm-hmm. for the most time I, put, I can tell that story 
well, I sometimes my eyes tear up. It's okay. Like emotion's not horrible, but I have mm-hmm. to be able to like have a conversation um, and not sure. be devastated. But so I think that these personal experiences to me, I think are important because these are languages that I bring into a room um, and that I bring into a room that not everyone has. Or sadly, if you come from a background of poverty, the fact that you can even get to the room is sometimes almost impossible. Mm-hmm. And it's not because of trying it's because of how do what's the access mm-hmm. and thankfully there's that's why these programs are in place in some t- cases but i've had an executive say to me i rarely hear from someone who has has your background mm-hmm. and i'm like because it's really you know how long it took me to get here <laughs> like it's like it takes a long time to get to this to get to this meeting yeah and i think like but i need to share those parts of me because that's the authenticity that's the language i bring to the room but then also what i do is i tell these stories in some cases i won't tell the story about that collective creation moment and being like it's not appropriate for that part of the conversation there's another story like of like how i like won a contest in vancouver and got to move to like got to move to london and that experience and how being in theater blah 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 or oh like i never realized that you could be a writer and like so i was an actor because that's who told the stories and then i realized no really i want to be the one writing the stories like there's all these different ways you can tell your story of being a writer because i think there's never there's not one way that made us a writer there's so many mm-hmm. things that made us into creators i'll say creators because it's more than just writing it's directing everything it's making and i think so i think understanding like you know, what that story is you want to tell and being flexible, but also relating it to the work that either they've read or that you're sharing or you're pitching. Because what you're doing is you're relating, you were relating your experience to the story that they read or you're telling. um, So they understand why you, without you having to say, why me? Because as you talk about your experience of like, this is why I write your, and you're like, and here's my story about a mom who lost her job and a, and this type of daughter and whatever, who moved back to a small town and have to like, you know, swallow their pride to live with her parents who she's been at the outs with for 10 years or 15 years or whatever amount of time. I might talk about how I left home when I was 17 Mm -hmm. and I, and I lived on my own for my last year of high school. I may talk about like not being able to eat and going to the food bank. I may talk about those things and, and how like it impacted like my creativity or whatever I want to, like, I'll tell those things. Like, maybe that's, maybe I won't tell all those things. I don't know. Sure. Um, I'll be mindful of the, the audience receiving it may never have experienced those things. And it may actually take them out of the story. So what is mm-hmm. the sometimes sanitized version of my story in my life that I can tell right. that makes you relate to me and understand that I understand what I'm talking about, but that you still feel that I'm capable of doing the job. What is the strategic truth about my life yes. and about this story? I'm not lying ever. I never lie. Like, don't lie. Like Mm -hmm. you are all very interesting people. Like, I don't understand that when you hear people go, oh yeah, that person lied about their military career. I was like, you can find that out. Like you can know, like you can find I love that that's the touch point now for like everyone on screenwriting Twitter. It's like, can you believe? I know. (laughs) So I feel like, I feel like finding the truth that is appropriate for the moment is just more about connecting the dots for someone because you forget that, you know, all the parts of you, you're like, of course you, but I'm like, oh, I didn't tell them that part right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you, mm-hmm. so tell them the part that you, that you want them to know the most because you only have sometimes 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. You can't tell every part of your life story and like why you write and what you write and what things you've written in 30 minutes. So you have to be strategic mm-hmm. and make sure that you are opening the door to more conversations right. and understanding, like always ask them, like, this is better. Like if you can talk about yourself, you kind of know what they do and what, whatever, 
then ask them before you pitch anything. Cause in a general, I'm like, prepare to soft pitch anything you have or everything you have. I've once I've had to rattle through like a million long, like a million like ideas. And then at the end, I'm like, I don't know about this idea. It's just off the top of my head. They're like that one. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but I think like understanding, like, what do you like? Like, what are you watching? Like, what kind of things are you excited? Like my favorite question is like, if you could make something tomorrow, anything, like what would you make? What would make you most excited? Sometimes it's not even something on the mandate of the company they're working for, but understanding, like it helps you understand who they are. And then what you can do is like, you're reflecting like, okay, great. Like catalog of things. You're like, Hey, um, I haven't started working. Like sometimes I'll say this, Hey, um, actually the next project I'm working on is about like, uh, I don't know, an ex clown. I'm just making this up. I have no clown <laughs> shows. Yeah. They're scary. Clowns are scary. <laughs> Unless um, someone's listening and wants to buy Heather's clown show in yeah. which case it's her next project. <laughs> But I, but I basically like, I always am mindful of like how much time things pass between like telling someone something and giving it to them. But I also have learned from my own mistakes that I never give anything to anyone until I feel like it's completely ready because Mm -hmm. once they've read it, you've, that's it. You're done. Like there's no second chances. So I'm always really mindful of that, but I'm also very mindful of like, I let them know. I'm like, Hey, I'm still figuring this out. I might be a little while till I can get this to you but I will get it to you when it's ready. And so then I'm just really transparent and I, and I will put that, I will shift my order of work I'm doing and I'll get that to the front and I'll go and do it within a timely manner. But I also, I don't want to send them something that they're going to say, cause then they're going to say no. Right. But if in the moment I feel like I know that they will like this idea, I'll tell it to them to get that on their radar so that when it comes to the door, they're like, I remember this. And then they, that could be like, there was something there that we're having this like mutual conversation. And, and so like, those are some things I I think about, like being prepared, understanding what the people have, have done, watching everything you can. I once, like, I went and met someone from the team behind lock and key. I spent like the, I just stayed up really. I watched every, it just came out. I watched all the episodes. I came in and I said, I watched the whole season. It was really, and she's like, you watched the whole season. Like it just came out a couple of days ago. I'm like, I watched the whole season. <laughs> it was like, and I'm like, and this and this and this, and I had ideas and thoughts, I don't thoughts, but I just like, this is why I like it. This is why it relates to me as a human. There it is. Like this. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. what I did is I said, I like it. And then I told my life story through how I related to the show. That's smart. Yeah, that's great. So I think it's like putting that time in and that effort in and being able to understand like why how can this conversation about this thing also allow me to interweave my own story because we don't, we only have a half an hour or an hour. So I need to like do double duty for everything that we talk about, but also those are things that interest me because they are reflections of me. So why wouldn't I be interested in it? It's a great point. Yeah. Well, thank you so much thank for talking you. to us, that Heather. Is... We really, really appreciate this time. You're welcome. Yeah. You gave us so much. There are so many great little bits. We're going to pull so many quotes from you. <laughs> yeah, I, I have been writing quotes as quickly as I can without fully taking myself out of the conversation. So this has been wonderful. Oh, great. Uh, where can people find you and the next cool things that you've got coming out? You can find me on heatheratailor.com. Also, I because I think branding is good. All channels are Heather A. Taylor. Mm-hmm. Twitter, Instagram, everything, because I think like, then you will always know where to find me, but there is an A in it because there's a lot of tailors and someone beat yeah. me to heathertaylor.com. So mm-hmm. I am Heather A. Taylor, like in the world of the internet, something that's cool. It's coming out. So my sister and I are, we were doing a podcast 
this is always surprising, like not surprising as is everyone else. My sister, <laughs> my sister, and I'll say this because this will be on the podcast. My, it's a podcast called Brains, B-R-A-A-I-N-S podcast. Mm-hmm. It's about the facets of our brains and how film and television portray them. Oh. My sister and I, so uh, I have ADHD. My sister has anxiety disorder. <laughs> we talk a lot about our brains. We have a, we have family, all different parts of family who have different types of mental illnesses because lots of people do and that's okay. And also, even if you don't have a mental illness, our brains all work differently. Let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I think we really wanted to, because of the work that we do and the work that we really want to continue to create is work that is, like I said before, like really showing the truth behind like what mental illness really is and like, how do we show this in, in the most correct way to help us really understand it and what it really is. And I think that's kind of what this is based on. So we talk about our own lived experiences or we bring on people who have lived experiences of the specific facets. And then we also bring in experts. So we have, um, we have a clinical therapist, we have researchers, we'll have scientists, um, people who talk about like what it actually is, give people resources and how they can get help. And also like what we wish the TV and film industry would do um, to talk about these things and what we'd like to see come to life on screen. Because I think how we change people's minds is by what we see on the media that we are surrounded by. So to us, it's so important, so important. So it's super exciting. We are, if all goes well, (laughs) we'll be releasing on March 8th. Um, We are just getting everything ready now. We, our first episodes, the first one will be on identity and learning a little bit more about us. Um, Then we have an episode on sleep with Dr. Casey, who's a clinical therapist who does sleep research. And then Hamza Khan is our expert on burnout, who has both experienced it and has done a lot of research around it. And we'll have many more guests. We'll talk about ADHD and anxiety, but we'll also talk about things like misinformation. We'll talk about what happens to your brain when you're in situations like cults. Like we'll we'll really want to talk about different things about our brains that we see a lot in the media that, and we'll also have, we also did an interview with my six-year-old niece. So we'll talk about kids' brains <laughs> and what kids think. And so to talk to her and talk about representation and talk about like how she wants her brain to be uh, portrayed and portrayed <laughs> is really fascinating. We, she is very smart and I love her. <laughs> That's amazing. That well, this episode's great. coming out late April. So hopefully a handful of episodes are already out. So yes. As always, yeah. as we'll say again in the outro, the links will be in the, the episode notes. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Heather. Yeah, thank welcome. you so much. This has been so great. No, thank you so much for having me again. I feel really honored that I was asked and I really hope it's helpful. And I'm always willing to, you know, as much as I can have conversations with people or answer questions. So please reach out. I'm, I think we all have to be here together for each other. So, so uh, I'm here if you need it. 100%. Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, Ezra Lee for editing this episode, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them and our guest are in our episode description. And thank you to our booby VIPs, who are our $10 supporters on Patreon, including Kim Garland, Amanda Blunt, Anthony Epp, Kelsey Rauber, Norman Steinberg, Jerry Maravilla, and Brandy Nicole Payne. If you want your name on that list and or to have access to our bonus resources related to each and every episode, you can subscribe for as little as $3 to our Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingoutpod. Or join our free newsletter where we share a new creative prompt each month. Next episode, we'll be discussing directing branded content with special guest B. Monet. Be sure to tune in.